Hello, and welcome to episode 91 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have an interview with Sean McArdle. Sean is the creator of The Fuhrer and the Tramp. Sean, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Why don't you uh, start us off with a brief uh, bio about yourself? Thanks for having me, Matt. Um, let's see. I, uh, this is my first book that I've, I've um, actually created myself. I've done a lot of work for other um, creators, uh, from penciling to lettering to coloring. But uh, this time I finally decided to finish something on my own. Very cool. And so what were some of those, uh, before we talk about your book, what were some of those other jobs that you were, you were doing, the, the, the penciling? Or did you say penciling? I'm sorry. Uh, or the, yeah, I, I did know, penciling. And what were those on? Well, I did some penciling on uh, Phantom Jack for, uh, uh, it was for Image and uh, also um, Tales of the Starlight Drive-In for Image. Oh, wow. And then, and then I did some penciling on uh, um, Nowhere Man Agenda for IDW. Um, and <clears throat> I did uh, coloring and lettering on Swerve. That was for Arcana. And... Um, a bunch of other just small projects, just like some fill-ins and, you know, assists and stuff like that. And did you go to, did you go to school for, for art or are these self-taught skills? Um, I went to uh, Kent State University and okay. uh, majored in graphic design and with a minor in studio art. Uh, I started in painting and then moved into, uh, once I realized that there was no prospects for actually getting a job in painting, uh, I uh started into graphic design well illustration and then moved into graphic design and uh, i've been working as a graphic designer since and were you uh were you reading were you reading comics at the time when you were in college well that was one of the things too is whenever i um you know one of my goals was always to draw comics or write comics uh mainly mainly draw um Actually, I thought the writer and artist kind of did everything, or the artist did everything, mm -hmm. um, because you know reading a lot of the the Marvel method. But this is uh, going back to you know the the nineteen eighties and looking at uh, the how to draw comics the Marvel way, and where it really teaches that Marvel method. Uh, that's what I had always envisioned doing. But uh, once I got to college, between you know. Um, every aunt and uncle and um, adult that asked me what I want to do. And I wanted to say I would make comics and they would respond with, you know, you're not going to make <laughs> any money doing that or there's no career in that. How are you going to support yourself doing that? From that to also all my teachers thinking that pushing that comics was kind of like a, a bastard art form and it wasn't real art. Uh, that kind of really kind of started affecting me in my later teens, but also at that time, once I'm like 19 or 20 years old and a freshman in college, um, that was also the, the, the late 90s, the, the, uh, when the bubble popped. Okay. And, uh, and also I realized I wasn't enjoying comics that much anymore at that point either. I didn't know how many books I just had bagged and boarded that I never read. So I kind of dropped out for a couple years. Um, Plus, also, if I had a couple of dollars in my pocket, I wasn't going to spend on comics. I was you know, going to try to take a girl out on a date or something, you know, or do something social, do something fun. Um, but then I 
got back once I uh, got into being a graphic designer, I really did not have any passion for actually designing. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get back into uh, making stuff for myself. And so by that time I already had, I was already married and had a child and uh, it was kind of a more difficult entry point at that, at that rate. I already had a full-time job. And so it was uh, more of a side thing that I was doing for myself. Uh, and it took me quite a while to uh, get to a point where I felt that I needed to create something for myself. That I needed something that was mine, you know, that, I wasn't creating for someone else. And that was this book. Very cool. So, um, and that seems to be a common story for a lot of folks is to uh, have that sort of um, childhood with comics. Maybe once you reach that college age, you, you kind of move away from it for a while and then, and then you, then you come back. Um, and you did mention that uh, in art school, I guess maybe the, the fine art and then the graphic art that, uh, some people tend to to look down at the uh, the artwork in, in comics. So that was something that you encountered. Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, I, that, that's how I got into illustration and moved from from painting. Was I remember I did this, I did this big, large large scale painting, and it was um, very comic oriented, you know. But um, it was like of a a little boy and his teddy bear fighting a monster in the closet. Um, and the I was pretty happy with it. And when we did the critique, my professor just like looked at it with scorn and just said, "This isn't a painting. This is illustration." And I was like, "Okay, fine. What's illustration? Tell me what that what that <laughs> is. That's what I want to do." <laughs> and uh, so uh, I went to the um, the advisors and found that there was an illustration program. I didn't know there was a difference, <laughs> and I ended up in illustration. And then. Whenever I was in illustration, I had a couple of mentors. This is late 90s, so everything's going photographic. So okay. uh, I'd met with uh, C.F. Payne, who is a, who's a great, great illustrator. He uh, did a lot of stuff for like Rolling Stone and um, uh, Time. He did a lot of like these car caricatures. Um, and he, he was a major artist at the time. Like um, Communication Arts Magazine, he was always all over that went to his house and like he has huge illustrations of every major illustrator working at that time. And I sat there with him for a whole day while I worked on uh, a painting and he grumbled the entire time. And he just said, there's no work anymore. He said, everything's going photographic. And he, he said, um, go just go into graphic design. You're not going to get any work kid. <laughs> and so that's what I did. I went to graphic design then um, left my illustration behind, you know, I, and, you know, I did illustration while as a designer, mm -hmm. but focused more on logos and letterheads and, and brochures and websites and stuff like that. My heart was never really in it, though. So even with the, the illustration, was, that, uh, was there any time to, to focus on, like, the sequential art part of it? Or was it, like, single images for, for like, magazines and stuff like that? Yeah, it was spot illustrations for magazines. You know, you're looking more at... Um, you know, doing there was a, a lot, most magazines were had a lot more illustrations in them in mm -hmm. the early '90s compared to like the 2000s. A lot of the stuff that you see is uh, that even catalogs. A lot of pro, that's how you break in is like doing like product illustrations and stuff. 
and then everything will move photographic where all the all your products are photographed. I remember one of our one of my first jobs was I illustrated all of like these Rubbermaid containers. <laughs> Extremely boring work. But that's how you broke in in, in building your illustration portfolio was just doing stuff like that. Um, and but by the time I finished that catalog, the next time we did the catalog it was taking pictures of all those containers. <laughs> wow. All right. So let's turn our focus to, to this book. Um, I have read a preview of it and there's some uh, background material or backup material that uh, gives a little bit about the, the story. But why don't you uh, describe that for everybody? Okay. Yeah, I um, I was looking at 40 right in the eyes and realizing I did not, everything that was in my portfolio only existed in my portfolio and I did not like any of my projects. I wanted something for me. Didn't want a bunch of, you know, saw blades and Rubbermaid and light bulbs and just, just, just a bunch of stuff that, you know, all, uh, that I made for other people. I wanted to, I wanted to create something that I wanted. And, um, um, so I, um, I was trying to find a project that I thought I could knock out quickly that not really quickly, but like something that I was into, but not something that was going to be like a sprawling 70 issue Sandman. You know, I needed something that was four issues, get it done, show that I finished something, you know? And I had this idea uh, after watching the interview with uh, the Seth Rogen movie, um, what uh, James Franco and Seth Rogen, where they uh, go to South Korea or North Korea, um, and at that time Kim Kim Jong Un had uh, threatened to assassinate Seth Rogen uh, for making that movie, and that was the time of the Sony leaks. Whenever they the North Korean government, uh, uh, you know, hacked into Sony's emails. Um, and I just thought it was so ridiculous that Seth Rogen was going to be a, a target of a national leader trying to assassinate Seth Rogen, <laughs> you know, the guy from Knocked Up, uh, the guy from Freaks and Geeks. Someone wanted to assassinate him. Mm-hmm. And that just seemed ludicrous to me because uh, it was 2015. The world was a lot simpler, I guess. Very true. Um, yeah. And... Um, so I thought, well, you know, Hitler didn't even try to assassinate Charlie Chaplin when he made The Great Dictator. And then I thought, what if Hitler tried to assassinate Charlie Chaplin while making The Great Dictator? And I immediately, the entire thing was there, you know. Um, and I talked to my buddy John. Now, John Judy is uh, one of the smartest guys I've ever known in my life. And if I can get him to... Um, to like an idea and bite on an idea, then I know it's a good idea. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so I pitched it, I pitched it to him, but also I kind of felt like I needed, I, I need someone in my corner helping me out and, you know, making sure that I didn't get lost in the weeds, um, which is what usually happened when I tried making a comic. And uh, I pitched it to him knowing that number one, he's a Chaplin fan. He's a silent movie fan. He's a uh, fan of classic cinema. Uh, and has a wealth of knowledge. Um, and, and he was into it. He liked it. He, it was, it was, he, he, he's, it was the, uh, he said it was the best elevator elevator pitch that I ever had. Cause most of my pitches were like way too long. I couldn't get to the meat of it. This was just like, you know, Charlie Chaplin fighting Nazis and Hitler while making the great dictator. 
you get to mm -hmm. say it in a sentence and you see it, you know? Um, go ahead. So how does that writing process go with, uh, did, uh, with you guys? Do you, do you outline it and uh, he, he comes in and, and makes tweaks or do you, do you write scenes individually? How does, how does that work? A little bit of both. Like um, initially, uh, I did a lot of research. I read uh, all three. Well, first we 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 sat there and spitballed a lot. We would we would um, just you know talk about the plot and try to come up with ways to add some meat to the plot. I thought it'd be great to have like a Luke Leia Han love triangle in it. So then it was like identifying who those characters were. And um, we settled on Errol Flynn and Hedy Lamar pretty quickly. So then um, at, at the time, Hedy Lamar had been uh, uh, on NPR quite a bit. They were talking about like how she had invented uh, Wi-Fi and had done all these, uh, had all these patents and stuff. And I just found something so intriguing about that. This woman that was supposed to be the most beautiful woman of the world at that time. But she wanted to be known for her... Uh, her intelligence versus her beauty. I, that really struck me. Um, also, th the more I learned about her, the more it just really fit the story. Uh, she had fled uh, fled the Germans um, in, in the 30s and ended up in Hollywood. Uh, and she was half Jewish. Um, and, you know, uh, her, 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 her story just seemed to really, really become the... the um, the Jiminy Cricket, the, the conscience of Chaplin. Um, she became the Leia. She became the Leia of the story, you know? Um, and uh, Errol became the Han. <laughs> uh, and so then what, what we would do is I came up with a system to, to keep myself in line. I'd already read all these books on how to write screenplays, how to write comics, and I created my own method going through all of those before I even wrote a thing. Cause I knew I need, if I was going to do this, I needed to have a plan and I needed to attack it. Like I attack projects whenever I'm doing branding projects for, you know, multi-billion dollar companies, just the same way that I would pitch a project for in, in, in the advertising world. So I came up with the structure and would break it down and have each page broke down. Like, okay, on this page, this needs to happen on this page. This needs to happen. Um, and then wrote those in like a, a Google Docs, and then John and I would just bounce them back and forth. Um, there were some scenes where it's like, okay, John is really uh, into uh, FDR, and, and so I wanted John to write all the FDR dialogue and all the FDR scenes, or, uh, there were all the Roosevelt scenes. Um, there were some scenes like uh, where like I know that one of my skills and one of, one, of, one of the things I really like doing is writing like a lot of uh, uh, breaking down action into like these little mouse traps, you know, like uh, cause and effect. One thing happens, it causes another thing to happen. So whenever there'd be an action scene, I would script that out and do like little thumbnails and, and draw those up. We bounce those back and forth. And um, I think it, it started to grow that way. Just, um, there was a plan, but it was also, there was enough um, opportunity to allow, allow it to grow and to breathe. And so, yes. so after, after you and, and, and John worked on that, when was, uh, when was Dexter brought on board? Well, um, 
I knew I was going to work with Dexter immediately. I'd already worked with him before. Um, I had already done about six, six or seven issue ones <laughs> and then pitched those around and they never got picked up. Okay. Um, and several of them I did, a couple I did myself and several of them I did with Dexter. And this time I felt I was just going to finish this thing. I was actually going to have something for myself, but also for Dexter. We had all these issue ones that, that were sitting in a drawer now. Now I wanted something that I could actually send him a book they could hold in his hands. Um, and we had already developed through working on all those issues together. And he had already worked with John on uh, Swerve. Uh, and that was a five issue mini. Um, and I had worked on some of the coloring and the uh, lettering of that. And also helping communicate with Dexter uh, with, with John, because sometimes, um, you know, Dexter coming from an artistic visual standpoint and John more of his, his background, he's, you know, he's getting his doctorate in English. Um, okay. so, so sometimes there's a, there, there's this gap there, you know, uh, between the writer and the artist. And I was kind of filling in a lot of those spaces and I had a very Dexter and I have a very give and take relationship. Um, you know, like, I, I feel comfortable. I can give him something and he's going to, he is going to take it 10 steps beyond what I gave him. And at the same time, he feels comfortable enough to send those pages back to me. And if I don't think that he foreshortened the hand, okay, correctly, I'll redraw his hand or whatever, you know, I'll make little changes or cut apart panels in Photoshop and move them around a little bit. And to, to have that kind of relationship between uh, writer and artist or artists is, is kind of unique. Um, I don't think many artists, most artists are kind of protective of their work. Um, but I, I like that collaborative nature of being able to, you know, pick up each other's work and, you know, uh, I want to get my hands dirty too, you know? <laughs> uh, also if I'm going to work with an artist, I'm going to work with somebody better than me. <laughs> so yeah, of course it's going to be Dexter. Yeah, the, the art is, is pretty amazing here. You had mentioned earlier that, uh, for some of the, uh, the action scenes that you had thumbnailed them. And there's lots of, there's lots of action here. Um, were you looking at, uh, did you go and look at any of the, 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 the movies from that uh, era to, to try to get some, get some inspiration for, for how things moved and how the, the two, how Chaplin or, or Errol Flynn would, would, would handle these things? 100% constantly. That's what I, that's what I did all the time. I was rewatching and watching you know, Chaplin's movies and shorts over and over again. Anytime I would get stuck or it, right before, even if I wasn't stuck, even if I had an idea how I'd break something down, I would still throw in the kid or um, uh, the circus uh, and, and watch that or have that playing while I was kind of, you know, messing around with thumbnails um, or watching the Seahawk or um, Adventures of Robin Hood um, or any other Rob, uh, Errol Flynn movie just because I wanted to imbue that sense of their style and action into it. Uh, sometimes also Jackie Chan movies, watching Jackie Chan movies really helped inform a lot of that action because he does a lot of what I say that, that cause and effect mm -hmm. that, you know, he does one thing and he uses the environment too. you know, one thing causes another thing to happen that causes another thing to happen. And he was obviously influenced by, you know, Chaplin and Buster Keaton in uh, the, the, you know, um, um, more acrobatic and um, physical comedians. 
mm-hmm. um, you can definitely see a through line from that to, to, to uh, Jackie Chan. And so I kind of wanted to have that sense in it too. I also watch a lot of Spielberg too. Spielberg does that really well, that, that cause and effect and setting up an action scene that uh, utilizes the environment. And, um, and also it's, it's not just a bunch of random punches or random actions. The actions have consequences and the consequences cause the next action. And I, I, that's just my, my style. I, I like that. I love reading that. I love seeing that. And I love writing that too. Very cool. Yeah, I actually never really thought about it, but like uh, uh, Jackie Chan and like Rumble in the Bronx, that's um, that's kind of oh, like yeah. a it's kind of like a Chaplin movie with all the sort of like it's psych gags and like the you know using different props as you know either to get out of things or to to improvise and use them as weapons. So yeah, I never really thought about that, but that I I, I can see that now. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So um, I know that earlier in the interview, you said that uh, the, the characters kind of came to you really quickly. Was there anybody that you ever thought of different than Errol Flynn as the sidekick? Or did he just make perfect <laughs> sense because he's sort of got that swashbuckling, um, you know, nature to him? Well, actually, there was two. Uh, and I think you can guess both of them. Uh, uh, one was, um, oh, man, everything's escaping me now that you... Um, Chaplin's best friend, uh, the, the the original Errol Flynn. Um, I'm drawing a blank too. Okay, yeah, uh, he was a member of uh, United Artists with him. Okay, I'm sure. Um, I'm, sh- I'm sure Douglas people Fairbanks. are. Okay, it was Douglas Fairbanks, but he, I felt that he was too old, and also he died while Chaplin. What I found out was he died while Chaplin was filming The Great Dictator, and that really started to inform the 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 uh the story because i realized that chaplin had lost his best friend while making this movie and it's nothing that's ever reported on it's not even in any autobiography any of his biographies or anything but just looking at the the timeline douglas fairbanks died while charlie was filming um and that had to have affected him Mm -hmm. um and um so there, I, there is a little, I wanted to deal with that more, but I could not find a way to, to bring that in. We had even written some scenes of, of Charlie going and talking to Douglas Fairbanks in the original, instead of it, everything going down at uh, uh, Errol's house on the second issue, it was going to take place at, Dar- uh, at Fairbanks. Um, but it just seemed to add too much. You know, it was just like another character and another setup. Another thing that I had to explain, but it, it's, it, it really informed the story and why I was connected to it was because, you know, Charlie, at that time he was losing, he, uh, the great dictator is the first time he didn't play as the tramp. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was, he put the tramp character behind him after that, after uh, modern times. Uh, it's his first talkie. Uh, he was turning 50 years old. His best friend had died. Uh, you know, he went through all these changes, and I was approaching forty, and approaching a lot of different changes. I was, I was kind of freshly divorced, and you know, uh, I had a lot of things going on in my life that that was up in the air, mm-hmm. and hitting that midlife uh, crisis, I guess, you know, um, and examining, looking back at my life, and I started to kind of feel that for Charlie for real at that time. He must have went through that and he never talked about it. But then also how that kind of 
guided the storytelling, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and then it became more about him reconnecting with um, his youth and also with making new friends with uh, Errol. Because it's not like it's a contentious relationship. That, that really formed their relationship was that it wasn't like, oh, here's my new buddy, Errol. Mm-hmm. It's like, this guy's replacing my old friend, not only in movies, but also in my life, you know? Yeah, and, um, you know, just, just thinking about the book now after reading it, like the, uh, the just having Flynn there, the, the way he's represented, you can see that, uh, uh, you know, there's a bit of uh, uh, the way that you guys imply the way that he looks at, at Flynn, you know, he's dashing. Um, and, you know, there's, there's obviously the, the, the lady in the middle that they're, you know, trying to impress and, and stuff like that. So I think, I think that works out really well. Well, thank you. Thanks. So um, you do put a lot of historical characters uh, through this. Um, how much, uh, how much, I know that you said that you, you did a lot of research, but like uh, how much, uh, like history books and 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 stuff were you looking at there a lot i read uh the rise and fall of the third reich uh and which is the book on you know the third reich on on world war Two, uh which is huge it's it took forever to read uh and and i'm reading that in 2000 you know in 2015 and you know, then 2016 happens. I'm like, oh my God, we're doing it. We're doing it. We're going right down this path. <laughs> yeah, the the, the uh, news the news is hitting a little too close to, to the book, I yeah, guess. It did. Like the book really, like I tried not to let it change the book, but it, it's kind of hard to not, you know, it became, it became this lark that became topical, you know? Um, and it's sad that people don't see it. It's like, it's right here. We did this before, you yeah. know? We went right down this path before. Um, and, um, I also, I, uh, I, I just love, uh, listening to audiobooks when I'm working. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the books I had picked up was, uh, it was about, uh, uh, uh the Ministry of Non-Gentlemanly Warfare, which is just such a cool British name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it was a real thing. And, and Ian Fleming was actually part of it. And so was uh, Christopher Lee. Um, and they, it, what it was, was it was like basically a bunch of, it was commissioned by, um, they, they took um, like kind of like black ops. It was like, they were doing kind of like little wet works things mm-hmm. uh, or, or a lot of spy things. And it's the, the, um, um it's what became mi6 uh after world war ii and so once i read that and i already had the fifth issue kind of like laid out but then i was like why have a bunch of red shirts in here when i can populate these red shirts with actual people that you know we know and so uh that's when i fleshed out that cast that oh you haven't got the fifth book yet so yeah you'll see that that's that's the fifth issue um Hitchcock also, he was back in London at that time making uh, propaganda films for, um, uh, for the British government and doing his, his effort in the, for the war. And uh, since he was already there, I was like, okay, I'll use, I'll use uh, 
Hitchcock. I mean, I, I had a couple other people in mind, but I mean, like if you're going to do that, you might as well use Hitchcock. I didn't want this to become like a force dump thing. I was, my, my inspiration for this was more um, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and which I love, I adore. And so I was trying to be informed like that. It's like, okay, these people are here at this moment. So it makes sense that, um, you know, Hitchcock would be here at this point and they would help out Charlie. That, that, the, that these, these people were all present at, at this moment in time. I didn't have to be like, I mean, it's a fictional story, so I could mm-hmm. do whatever I wanted, but I kind of like giving myself those limitations and it made it feel real to me, you know? Very cool. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that as uh, that, that character pop up. Um, so you also act as the letterer and the, the colorer are on this book, uh, the colorist on this book. Um, let's talk a little bit about being the letterer. Do you use that as an opportunity to make any sort of uh, changes to the script, any final uh, final edits when you see the the images on the on the panels does that does that change what you might have originally wanted to to write one hundred percent I will never not letter my own book uh, I really think that all writers should letter their own book uh, because that's that's your last pass that's your final edit to go through and now how do the words that you wrote how do they interact with the images mm-hmm. there I, I think a lot I, I, I see it too much in comics that there's there there's there's this separation between the words and the images on the page and you need to tie those two together you need th- th- there's a lot of times that the, the that that the artist already did the work for you so now it's redundant to, to mm-hmm. the word the word balloons are redundant uh so it's either but also it's like how do the words the words aren't a separate layer on top of the images. The words and the word balloons are part of the image and they interact with the image. And I, I think I got better at that. And I think you'll see in the fifth issue, I started using the word balloons themselves to actually be part of the art. And there's a part that I was pretty happy with that took a lot of work, which I wanted to take the, the speech that uh, Charlie gives that you know, you've seen on Facebook a million times in, in uh, The Great Dictator, that amazing speech that kind of informed this entire book. Mm-hmm. I wanted to just use that speech and I wanted to choke Hitler with it. So uh, the final scene, Hitler's watching the movie and I brought the word balloons down and just wrapped them around Hitler's neck. Very cool. On his neck. I wanted and, and like, if I wasn't the letter and I don't know how to communicate that to a letter, if I was working with another letterer um, and, and it's the way you break, I had to break the phrases in a certain way. To, to bring impact to the to, to certain sections of a speech, but also to try to create that that rope, that noose around Hitler's neck. I went, you know, and that just became as important to me as anything else was how do those balloons and how do those uh, words interact with the page? And then seeing, seeing the words and the type, you know, and that's what we were taught as graphic designers. You see type as image. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, that's one reason I, I don't think I would ever not letter my own books. Yeah, I've actually heard that uh, uh, in a few conversations from different writers that are letterers. They 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 express the uh, the the importance it gives you on that that last pass through to to clean everything up or to possibly 
you know, spruce some language up or, or change things up. So I've, I've heard that a lot. Um, what's your process like for, for coloring? Well, uh, for this book, I had originally done a uh, self-published Kickstarter run and uh, did it in black and white. Uh, and I did the gray tones in, in that. Sorry had a uh, had a file um, in, and had them flatted to, for the gray tones. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the flats I did myself, I also hired an artist in the Philippines to do some of the flatting for me just to, just to speed up the process. Uh, and actually, he does a better job flatting than I do. I get sloppy. He's real, real precise with his, with his flats. Uh, but so that, that helped me because I thought, okay, there may be a time that I may want to color this. Um, originally, it seemed to make sense. It made sense to me that it was in black and white. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I want to get my hands dirty on this artwork, too. Uh, I also like to. So I did the gray tones, but I used the gray tones as an opportunity to kind of like guide the eye through the page and also to make some things move forward, some things move backward, uh, bring emphasis to certain parts of the page. Um, and also give myself a time to mornings getting these pages from Dexter you know uh opening my inbox and finding a new page was the, the greatest feeling uh, so I wanted to, to take time and just sit there and you know go over it and dip into it um so I did all the gray tones and then I had to go back and do all the coloring and I wanted to do something different with the coloring um at first I was kind of a little bit inspired by uh, Scorsese, how he did the aviator and how like every scene going through different eras was based on the technology that was uh, available at the time. Okay. So at the beginning, he does like uh, some Technicolor two strips, which was uh, an early color uh, process where they just they only used like a, a green and red. And, they, and so you get these weird like pinks and teals and stuff like that. Um, and then you you have more like the duotones that they did, that the painted cells like they did with like uh, some of the silent movies. Uh, and I started playing around with that, but the more I did that, it was just too limiting. I just kind of broke off and I decided just to throw my entire art history knowledge at this thing. So if I wanted to be inspired by uh, paintings at the Cleveland Art Museum that I love, I was inspired by those, you know? And I would pick up, each scene I would try to make it like, all right, this is the tone of this scene and think about like a cinematographer. It's like, what is the mood and tone of this scene? What am I trying to express? What colors best express that? And try to keep everything within that and only use colors in, in that sp- specific scene in, in, in that range, you know? Um, so yeah, that's basically what I did. <laughs> Okay, so let's turn the conversation a little bit towards comics experience. Um, how much of this did you workshop through uh, comics experience to uh, to get it to to the to the point where you were able to to pitch it to source point? Oh, quite a bit actually. Um, I uh, I met Andy. I think comics experience was just starting, or was an idea he had. Um, and I'd, I'd worked a couple of those six issues that I had talked about. Um, I'd worked, uh, the, those where I make a six issue and create like an entire plot for, you know, uh, a, 
for a mini series or whatever and only do an issue one. I had workshopped a lot of those with Andy already. Um, and, you know, I had uh, uh, worked with Andy on this one, just setting up and, and um, you know, he served more as an editor than, and, I, and he's credited as an editor on the book. Um, kind of guiding the story and guiding kind of um, choices that were made. Um, and also bringing up like logical fallacies and plot holes that in my story. Uh, so that was always beneficial. Um, but he also is a great cheerleader. <laughs> He's always positive and always, I never get off the phone with Andy and feel, um, you know, a lot of times I, I, when I'm talking to Andy at the beginning, I feel overwhelmed, but by the end it, I feel confident. I feel like I can handle this. I know what to do. And now I have a, I have an attack plan, you know? Um, I, I think with Andy, um, it's, it's like, um, an assistant director almost, you know, you have somebody that's there that's able to kind of guide all these pieces that, and, uh, all, all the logistics that you weren't thinking about be able to like, point out to you, you know, or, um, help you get through a lot of the different weeds of production that you forget about, or that you're just not aware of. Um, and you know, is a, it's a valuable resource that I, you know, it's insane that, that we have that kind of resource. Yeah. Sometimes as writers, we live with these stories in our head so much that, uh, you know, we, we connect all the pieces and we see, we think that we see everything, but you need that second set of eyes to sort of, or ears to come in and go, Hey, this doesn't quite work here. Or logically you kind of didn't connect these two points. So having that is, is, is very valuable. Yeah, it is. So um, this, this went through the comics experience uh, path to publishing, right? And uh, yep. you, you, you pitched it to, to source point and it's going to come out in stores in March. Is that correct? Yes. March 25th. And uh, it's a five issue series. So um, one, one each month is that, is that the plan? And then to, to have a trade uh, at, at the, at the end of that. Yeah, that's the plan. Uh, you know, it's um, the fifth issue is a forty-eight pager. It, okay. It, when it became a double size, I just could not. I could not get it down. To, if you notice, I have trouble even keeping it down to twenty-four pages. All of them are running twenty-eight to thirty pages. One is thirty-two. Uh, I, I had trouble condensing the story, but also it, there was a point where it was like, "Well, I'm making this for me, so screw it." I wanted. I, what fan is going to be like, Oh, you gave me 32 pages instead of 24, you know? No, I want more story. <laughs> uh, so by the time I got to the fifth issue and it went 48 pages, like, well, I could cut a lot and I'm trying to whittle this down. I'm like, no, it'd be awesome. If like you're into it, how many times have you gotten a mini series and like you get to the last, you finally get to that last issue in the mini series and it's a double, double sized mini or mm -hmm. double sized issue. That's awesome. Yeah. I remember they did that. Uh, didn't Mark Miller did that with uh, Ultimates 2? That was awesome. You finally get that after being delayed and delayed and delayed, and you get it, and it's a double-sized uh, finale to, to, to the miniseries. That, that, 
that's always a, a nice little extra surprise. Yeah, that certainly happens. I know, like, from my experience with a lot of Marvel events, you know, it's it's a four or five issue series, maybe six. And then you get that last one and you're right. It's 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 thicker because, like, uh, there's so much uh, in these cases and probably similar with, with this book. There's so much that you that you want to address you want to tie up so it being larger i don't uh i don't see anybody going oh man this book is too large i'm 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 not getting my uh i'm not getting my readers uh worth here my money's <laughs> worth so i don't i don't think that's going to be a problem yeah the only problem is trying to color it in enough time <laughs> true I, true i'm almost done with 4 and then i got to get into 5 and it's a double issue cool <laughs> So is there any, um, do you have any other plans? Is there any uh, maybe historical uh, events that you would have liked to tackle? Maybe uh, just just throw like, I'm just guessing maybe like a Cold War sort of uh, adventure that's similar to this? Yeah, we've been talking about, John and I have been talking about that, but the one that really keeps coming back uh, up again is um, once you see issue five, I introduced the um, Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare okay. um, and doing a side story with them, uh, doing kind of a little, um, uh, do, doing, and probably, um, I don't know if Chaplin will appear. We, we've got some ideas to bring him back, but really bringing back Errol, mm-hmm. probably Hetty, and uh, the rest of that team. And it's more of like a uh, Guns of Navarone kind of story you know, uh, a straight up war story. Um, that, that sounds, that sounds super cool. Um, so I have, uh, I've had a chance to, to read the, the first four issues and I, I'm looking forward to, to reading the fifth. Um, why don't you let folks know where they can find you online? Um, and, uh, you know, just, uh, talk about the book a little bit more and, uh, let's encourage folks to go out and pick up copies, uh, on March, uh, 25th. I have that date, right? Correct. Yep. March 25th. Okay. Um, I think mostly Facebook. Um, I'm at, I'm, uh, it's, you can't have the word Fuhrer in the title on Facebook. Makes so sense. it's, uh, Adolf, yeah, it's Adolf and Charlie. So it's facebook.com backslash Adolf and Charlie. But I am, it is Fuhrer and the Tramp on uh, Instagram. Um, and um, also I have a webpage. Um, uh, it's the Fuhrer and the Tramp.com. And I have some tutorials up there that I put up about my writing process. And I break down like how I uh, structure a story and how I structure an issue um, that Maybe it'd be maybe it's too rigid for most people, uh, but it it's what helped me finish it. Without that structure, I couldn't have finished it. Yeah, I actually was was looking at your website, and I'm definitely um, going to take a look at those. Uh, I I could uh, use a little bit of structure when 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 I write, so definitely that's a valuable resource that you're providing. No, oh, thanks, thanks. I mean, it helped me, and it's something I never wanted to do like I, I was was not a structured writer when I started mm-hmm. but uh you know that second act is it's it's a killer mm-hmm. <laughs> second second act is hard and uh it you need a structure to be able to get through it so awesome well Sean I had an awesome time talking to you and I I, I really enjoyed this book um I uh I know that you provided um, me but- 
I know that you provided me with a preview copy, but I, when I go into my, my LCS, I'll be picking up a, a hard copy to, to put in my, oh, that's awesome. with my collection. So I, I, I I'm really looking forward to it. Um, well, thanks. thanks yeah, thanks again for being on. Um, if anybody would like to check out Sean's stuff, we're going to have links to that in our show notes. Um, if you want to give the the podcast a follow, we're on Twitter at Construct Compod. We're on Instagram, Constructed Comics Pod, Facebook and YouTube at Constructing Comics. And we'll be back with a, another episode very soon. Thanks a lot.